Ah, decisions, decisions. Today, we'll talk about all the factors that go into setting your weekly lineups. Plus, a discussion about fantasy baseball in 2021, waiver wire, pitcher preview, Hall of Fame talk, and much more. USA Today's Steve Gardner joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Getting a little bit better from uh, last week's cold. Still a little bit hoarse, but feeling good and ready to talk some baseball. Mets won a couple of games in a row, so I'm excited. How about you? I'm very excited because afternoon baseball means that I have something to do while I'm at work. I have MLB.com. I have it on my phone. I'm watching games. It's a great break from the action, from my action at work. Absolutely. Well, we've got a great guest today from USA Today, none other than Steve Gardner. How are you, Steve? I'm doing great, and uh, I'm glad that my work consists of watching baseball. So uh, that that makes me happy. Yeah, fantastic. (laughs) Um, <laughs> that's always good to do. And uh, I was gonna say, Steve also runs uh, the uh, labor uh, leagues, which uh, uh, we're a part of. Uh, actually, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm in first place in in uh, mixed labor right yeah. now. Yeah, how about bad. that? Uh, I I I know you're a good player, and uh, being at the top of that heap is is quite an accomplishment because that's a heck of a heck of a league. Yeah, there's there's nobody bad in that league. I mean, you got Ray Murphy, Ron Chandler, Jeff Zimmerman. Ooh. To, to death row there. If uh, if you don't mind, could you stop the standings now so I can just finish in first? Sure, possible? sure. I, I do have that master switch here, but <laughs> if if I flipped it and uh, it would say that I finished last in oh. NL labor, so I'm not gonna do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, then you can flip it. You know. <laughs> yes. Uh. Uh, so we've got a great show today. Uh, today's episode is our lineups episode, and we're gonna talk a little bit of strategy and. Pick your brain, Steve, about uh, how to set lineups, what decisions go in, and so on and so forth. So let's get right to it. Um, a lot of times uh, we have the situations where you're setting your lineups, you have a couple guys on your bench from scrubs, but your star has only five games, right? They're not playing Monday. They're not playing Thursday. They've got five games, and you might have a scrub that has seven. Maybe they even have eight games, including a doubleheader. Question is, how do you decide at what point when to swap in a bench player for a star? Now, obviously, you're not going to sit Mike Trout, but maybe a third outfielder, maybe you would consider. What, what, how do you, uh, what is the decision process that you go through in setting your lineups? Yeah, I, I think for me, I look at quality stats versus quantity. Um, I, I value the quality more because really if they're a scrub what are the chances that they will play in all seven or eight of those games so i mean the 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 scale is not tilted that far in the first place and you know when you have a better player the counting stats could be comparable could be equal and you know the batting average of the you know the the ratios uh with the worst player they could hurt you so in that case generally Unless the players are very close in talent level, I'm going to lean with the better player even in fewer games. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I mean, just because a scrub is scheduled to have seven games, 
certainly if they're a platoon player or if they're not an everyday player, it's not going to be seven. It might be six or more likely the same five as the star has. Uh, Ruvain, how about you? What, what decisions do you go through? I'm actually the opposite. I want the quantity here. Um, if you have a star and he's playing five games, and he may, he may play all five games, but there comes a chance of a rainout. There's also a chance of him sitting a game, taking you know taking a breather. They want to give him some rest, even with the five days, even with only five games. I'm still willing to risk those seven games, but not yet. I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't drop. I, I, if I got the, the star guy, I want the star guy playing now. Maybe later on in the season, and when I'm trying to get more stats, then I'll maybe think about switching guys out. It also a matter about whether or not the star is hot or cold. Like, let's say I had Francisco Lindor. We keep coming back to him on the show. If I have Francisco Lindor and he only has five games and I have uh, another uh, another shortstop who has seven games or eight games, I may throw that shortstop instead just because I may get the better quantity and quality there. When it comes to the top first five rounds of players that you picked— I'm sticking with those guys through thick and thin for at least the very beginning of the season unless they're really, really cold or they have a really, really bad schedule. Steve, do you uh, ever look at the pitching matchups? I mean, if somebody is going to face Garrett Cole and Shane Bieber in the same week and they've got only five starts, is that uh, is that a time to sit maybe not a first-rounder but maybe a seventh-rounder? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, you're playing a game of matchups. And, you know, if, if you know you're going to get – a, a very difficult one or two very difficult ones, then that tilts the scales a little bit more. I mean, it's all it's all a balancing act. It depends on you know what stats you may need more than others. A lot of times, um, I mean, that makes sense too. So I do. I am especially if you know maybe a, a left-handed hitter is facing three or four lefties in a week. That could be that could be a, a determining factor as well. So yeah, you have to weigh everything just to see, you know, exactly which uh, which side you come down on. So how early in the season do you pay attention to categories when setting your lineup? So, you know, let's say you you're have a little bit of a gain in homers. You're in first place by maybe five homers in the early going, but you're a little bit light on steals. At what point do you say, okay, I got to look at my categories, and now I've got to tilt a little bit more. I got to play a John Birdie here, and maybe I'll sit Cole Calhoun for Birdie. At what what point of the season do you now look at and say, I'm not just looking for overall value. I'm looking for gains in specific categories. Yeah, in a weekly lineup, I I think you can't really do that before the middle of the season because you're still, I mean, especially in leagues where you can trade, you want to build up some of the areas where you're strong. You know, you want to get a lot of those stolen bases so you could trade one of your top uh, base stealers to somebody else and and help your team that way. Um, I, I think if, you know, if it's something that, uh, is, is way more, you know, home runs versus steals, something that doesn't really have any intersection, then you may weigh it a little bit more. But for me, I, I want to accumulate as many stats as I can early on in the season and, you know, uh, maybe play the matchups a little bit more, look at the categories a little bit more as we get closer to the end. Yeah, for me, for, for the John Birdie types, the guys who steal especially, I like to look at the upcoming matchups to see the pitcher, to see the catcher, to see what teams are being run on. Because I know that teams, when they come into a series, they get the intel, and they know, okay, you can run on this pitcher. Okay, you can run on this catcher. So if John Birdie is playing some teams like that, I might be, if they're playing the, the you know Noah Syndergaard of the Mets, I'm going to be playing John Birdie that week. 
right? I, I think it's important uh, not just about where you are in the categories, but in terms of playing the stolen base type, I think you need to play that matchup and look for the series that you're going to play the guy more than anything else. I mean, if you have a John Birdie on your team, you, you, you drafted him somewhere late, and you drafted him with the, the, the thought of, okay, I'm probably a little bit low on steals. I need to make use of him. I think that you have to make use of him at certain times in the year, not just when you're deficient, but when the matchups are better for him. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And and if you're not going to do that, then why do you have him on your roster in the first right. place? Right. So it, ma- it makes perfect sense. And that's also when the five versus seven games play in, because if you have a steals guy who's playing seven games, and you have a power guy playing five games, you should utilize those seven games and put the steals guy in at that time. I'll also mention uh, about speed is that stolen bases are more prevalent in a typical season in the months of April, August, and September. You see a little bit of a lull in stolen bases in the middle of the season in in June, July, uh, and half of August uh, until rosters expand and the weather is a little bit cooler. When the weather is hotter, it plays more power, less speed. So uh, another thing to consider is you want to utilize your speed guys early and late. You want to use more power when when it's going to be prevalent, right? If power guys go off in June, maybe play more power guys in the middle and have the speed guys play early and late. So just a couple of things to think of as you're setting your lineups through the season. Um, let's talk about uh, a situation that comes up all the time and even more so these days with injuries. It's Monday morning. And you've got a decent player on your team. We're not talking about Mike Trout. We're talking about some, you know, a, a, a sixth rounder. And they left the game uh, for hamstring tightness. Uh, uh, Byron Buxton pulled up lame uh, uh, today, and we don't know of his status right now. I will know after the next game, but let's say it's Monday morning, and we're not sure whether he's going to play or not. There's no new news. All you know is he left the game early. Lineups lock at 1 p.m. on, on the Monday question is, how do you set your lineups? At what point do you say, well, it's too good a player. I got to put him in no matter what. At what point do you say, it's just a risk. I need I need the counting stats. I can't have the uncertainty. Just taking anybody. And sorry if I lose some stats from, from the player. How do you handle that, Steve? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I pray for guidance, uh, I think. Uh, it's, it's really just a, a crapshoot a lot of the times because even if we do hear information, we don't know if it's 100% right either. And we're, for the most part, just guessing a lot of times. I think, you know, it depends on the magnitude of the player, too. Um, if he's one of your star players, you can't afford to, at least in my mind, some you can't afford to go an entire week, you know, if you're setting a weekly lineup, without that particular player. And uh, so in that case, you know, the downside... Of having of not having him in the lineup and missing out on five days, six days worth of stats is huge. And so I think in that case, you kind of lead toward uh, hoping that he's going to be okay. But if it's a marginal player that you can replace with somebody who's kind of close in terms of talent level, then you want to play maybe a little safer. Um, I know it, it also depends on your options too. If you're in a in a deep league. You can make those substitutions fairly easily if you're in or in a shallow league. Um, you can do that, but in a deep league like you know in a labor again, um, I started this week Christian Yelich and Mike Yastrzemski because I didn't have any other options and I needed both of those guys to be in the lineup. Well, Christian Yelich was in the lineup and I felt good about that 
until he got re-injured. Um, so you always have to worry about that as well. But um, I, I think I lean toward, you know, if they're key players for you, you the fear of missing out is probably the one thing that pulls me more than anything else. Right. And you make a key point that it's not just about the player, it's who's replacing them. If you have just some scrubs on the bench, um, <laughs> the scrubs aren't going to do that much for you. They'll hit a homer in the week, but you don't want to miss out on, on the guy who's healthy. If you do have some decent options on the bench, then you know you could be more conservative and, and just play them. I'll ask you this, Ruvain. What, what about the situation where it's Monday and you know that he's out? Oh, he's out of the lineup. To, to today, right? So so you know for sure he's not going to play the one game, but you don't know whether it's a one-day thing or it's he's going to go on the I.L. They say he doesn't gonna go, he's not going to go on the I.L., but you don't know it's going to be three games, four games, five games. Does the fact that the batter is out of the first game influence you? Um, you actually set me up perfectly here because I wanted to talk about Bryce Harper here. Bryce Harper last week was hit by a pitch. He missed three or four games. He played on Sunday, and then around 5 o'clock on Monday, they said he's not going to be in the lineup. What do you do with that type of player? That's the exact question you're asking. Now, if you read, quote-unquote, the tea leaves, and you see exactly what's going on, you have to get a feel of what's going on with the player. If you were to watch the game he played on Sunday, you saw he was swinging a bat and swinging in pain. There was one at-bat where he couldn't even swing. He was bunting instead. So you saw that he's in a lot of pain, and there was a chance he was going to miss more than one or two games. Bryce Harper is one of the guys. He's one of your stables in your lineup. But if you already see this, he's missed four games before. You don't know what his status is. You know he's out ready for Monday, and you don't know what the rest of the week looks like. In that, in that type of situation, you have a good idea that he is not going to play a, a few games that week. So if he's not going to play like two or three games that week, is it worth it to, to put someone else in who may play five or six games? It may be because you also know what kind of quality you're going to get from Bryce Harper. You don't know if he's if he's going to play and re-injure, just like with uh, with uh, with Steve, with Christian Yelich. You didn't know he was going to get re-injured. You don't know what's going to happen. But if you, quote-unquote, read the tea leaves, see how they were on Sunday, look at the couple of games before with what's going on, and you have a better idea what's what to do with the player. Steve, you're a little bit closer than us to to the players and, and to more of the, of the baseball world. Are there some key words or terms that either managers say or the media or maybe the, the team would say that you would look for in making your decision about whether the player is injured or not for the week? You know, one of the the scariest phrases I think that I hear is when a manager will come out and say that a player is day-to-day. Uh, that, to me, is the worst because it doesn't tell you that they think that the player could have played uh, it doesn't tell you if they think the player may be out for a couple of days. Th- that's the the watchword where I, I just throw up a lot of red flags. And generally, when man- managers are optimistic, general managers tend to be less optimistic when asked about player health. And and I think when managers say we think he's going to be back. Um, I think that's where you have to take what they say with a grain of salt. Because, number one, they don't want to give away information to the other side. And they, they, they want to try and be truthful with the media. But if they don't tell you flat out, we're going to give him a day today and we think he'll be back in the lineup tomorrow, then that's where you have to worry. So um, outside of not saying anything at all, um, which we've seen a lot of that with, players on the COVID injury list, um, when a manager says day-to-day, 
that's when I start worrying. I think that's that's fantastic advice uh, on on what to listen for, what not listen for. Uh, yeah, I, I just you know taking the managers and just just downgrading. I guess what they say, uh, being that there's they there's are. another word that I'm a little bit concerned about when managers say is they use the word a minor injury. Minor yeah. can be anything. It could be like like Steve said, day to day. It could be that they end up on the on the injured list. I mean, just take um, Anthony Rendon. He had a groin injury. Um, his manager called it minor. That afternoon on that on Monday they called it minor on Sunday and it was put on the IL on Monday so how minor is it if he's going on the IL so you don't read too much into the word minor because it can go either way when they say that yeah uh, what would be a major groin injury I mean that's uh, <laughs> a, a, I'm not a tear, sure what they would a, say a tear, oh, a tear. A, okay. listen um, Luis Robert had does not have a minor hip injury he has a major one he has a tear the difference between minor and major is usually just a sprain or a strain versus a tear or something right. like that. You know, what I find funny is they say a, a, a contusion. Well, what do you a get when you hear a contusion? Is, a contusion is a fancy word for a big boo-boo. <laughs> That's it. That's what it is. Uh, so you're not concerned when you hear contusion? Um, it depends where. If, if someone gets hit in the wrist and they have a contusion on their wrist and they're batting, that's a problem. But a, a leg contusion, I mean, again, I'm going to go back to Anthony Rendon. He had a leg contusion when he, when he fouled the ball off his leg. It's just a contusion, but they it still put them on the IL. So, again, it can go either way when it's that word. Interesting. I mean, that's basically uh, a bruise, right? Isn't that it, a, a fancy yes, word yes. for a bruise? It's a fancy word for a bone bruise. That's all. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, before we talk about fantasy baseball in 2021, it's time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Well, one of the trends we're noticing now in baseball and for this year, a little bit in last year as well, that batting averages are down this year. So my trivia question for tonight is, how many teams currently are batting 220 or below as a team? Uh, a fifth? Six, six teams, am I guess? Steve, what do you think? Wow. Well, I mean, the last well, I wrote something a week ago about the batting average overall in Major League Baseball was like 232 or something like that. So I would say how about how about 10? There are five. I bit down. There are five, okay. five teams, nice. the Brewers. Oakland, Cleveland, Seattle, and Detroit. Now, the crazy thing about that is that the first four teams, if the season ended today, they'd be in the playoffs, which just goes to show that yeah, Milwaukee, Oakland, wow. Cleveland, Seattle, Detroit. Last year, only two teams batted under 220 for the entire season. Between 2010 2019, zero. Zero teams batted under 220. It looks like it's a trend. Another trend. The Red Sox are leading the league right, right now in hitting as a team. They're batting. They're coming in today. They're batting 263. From 2010 to 2020, the league leader in team batting average has never been below 270, which means that either this is a trend that's just starting this year and is going to happen from now on. That this, this is the prevalency of the strikeout and not making contact. Or this just may be an anomaly that this, this is just one year that it's happening. We have no idea, and that's very hard to play, especially when doing fantasy baseball. Steve, how does this affect the way we play fantasy baseball? Well, certainly it's it's a lot easier um, uh, to get batters out and strike batters out these days than it has been um, in in previous years, and that trend just keeps continuing. Singles are down, um, and and hits are down. 
And at this point, I, I think that offensively, you know, to counter that, that you may have to look at players when you're drafting, when you're constructing your teams, um, of, of specialists who have batting average as their skill. I mean, we talk about one-trick ponies for mostly stolen bases or, you know, the, the slugging uh, players that hit home runs and do little else. But now I think we may have to at least pay some attention to guys we know like a Michael Brantley or, or uh, Jeff McNeil has been that guy before who have batting average as a skill and maybe give them a little bit extra if, uh, if batting average is in a category in, in leagues that we're in. Yeah. I mean, uh, a guy that I was very high on before the season, Ramiel Tapia, who I pegged as, you know, a good 290 hitter. Um, that guy becomes more important. He also steals. So uh, he, he was very important. Uh, but it also means that the 230, 35 homer types – who you think, you know, from in the past, you'd say, oh, I can't get that guy. It's going to kill my batting average. Well, th- they're not killing your batting average. That's what everybody's doing. I mean, Joey Gallo is worth a lot more this year because that batting average doesn't hurt you as badly. Uh, so it, it changes the distribution of who's more valuable in fantasy baseball. That, that's what it does, and you do have to account for that. And the problem we're running into this year is a lot of people – who drafted players for batting average, like the Jeff McNeil, who's batting 230, like the Freddie Freeman, who's batting 202, like the Charlie Blackman, who's batting 204, and so on. We thought we had this buffer, and now the people who had that have completely lost that advantage that they thought they had at drafting. Although I will, will say, we're talking about April, too, which generally... Every season, batting averages are lower. Now, we don't expect Freddie Freeman and Jeff McNeil and, and Charlie Blackman, those guys, to hit you know close to the Mendoza line. But you have to think that those guys especially will get those batting averages a lot higher in the months to come uh, because as the weather warms up, so do the batting averages. Yeah, I mean, exactly what I said before, that, you know, the, the, the hitting heats up in the summer, June, July. So, yeah, th- those batting averages will go up. It probably will end up on the low side, though. If, if you look at the trajectory and compare this year to some previous years, it'll end up lower, but it, it won't end up, you know, it, it won't stay where you have the Detroit Tigers and, and the Seattle Mariners batting 200. That's just, that's just crazy. Um, but also what we have is the fact that starting pitchers are lasting shorter and shorter into baseball games. You have closers, um, now committees. I mean, a lot of uncertainty. How do those things affect uh, uh, fantasy baseball for you right now? I think for me, um, I've kind of expanded my idea of what it means to stream pitchers. Um, I mean, usually when we think about streaming, we think of, yo, well, this guy has two starts this week. And so I, I can use him in there in this spot in my lineup. I'm looking not only to those starters, but expanding the pool a little bit. And, you know, it's not an exact science by any means, but streaming relievers too. And I think that's where because the relievers are getting a greater share of the wins, a greater share of the innings than they have in previous years, you need to not forget about them. And uh, there's some valuable, you know, Jonathan Lewisaga comes to mind as somebody who you don't really think about as somebody that I need to get in my lineup. But, you know, 
he's pitching in high leverage situations for the Yankees and uh, picking up wins, getting an occasional save. And you can't overlook guys that can be valuable um, just because they're middle relievers or, or late inning relievers. Yeah, the middle relievers now become more important. They're now viable. Um, I'll also say that on the top end, it also means that it pushes ace pitchers more valuable. Other than Luis Castillo, who is a second-round bust pretty much, everybody in that first two rounds are really, really uh, doing it. I mean, DeGrum, Cole, Bieber, uh, Corbin Burns, Woodruff, everybody's producing tremendous value. They're getting exactly what you thought you had. Sure, you had Castillo, but on the whole, these aces are really earning their dollars, and they're worth more than they would in a regular year because the whole middle isn't doing as much. I mean, when innings are down for everybody else, all those innings at the top now matter more. So it's it's making the risk of pitchers at the top less and thus more valuable. As far as the closers go, um, it to me, it's quantity over quality. I mean, if you got Jake McGee, you got a lot of saves right now. Jake McGee was not a first-tier or second-tier closer. Uh, to me, you know, uh, and of course, we're, we're post-draft, you know, just, just throwing a bunch of darts rather than spending all your money. Um, uh, you know, if you spent all your money on James Karinchak, uh, you, you did yourself no good. Um, so it, hey, wait a minute. He's been great this year. <laughs> we, we had the same discussion with Ian Kahn, uh, but he hasn't gotten you say, and he got one or two saves on the year. Um, still, you, you want that closer role for the saves, yeah, right? He's being, dra- he's, he's being drafted as a closer, not as a middle relief guy who gets a lot right. of strikeouts like Adele and Batances in the past. I'll still stick up for my man James, though. I think, he's, I think he'll have 20 saves by the end of the year. Ooh, I, I'll take that bet. Okay. All right. Excellent. Ding, ding, um, ding. <laughs> uh, so, you know, another question to you is, you know, and, and this comes up a lot. Obviously, you know, you, you run labor and, and, you know, you're involved in a lot of the, the bigger uh, expert leagues. Question is, should we be changing some of the rules of standard rotisserie baseball? Um, you know, obviously there's specific rules in general, but you know, what, what are your thoughts in general uh, in terms of, hey, we've got a standard. It, it used to be 4x4. Four four, now it's 5x5. Five five. Are, are you a, a purist and, hey, let's, we've got to stick with the game, or are you somebody that really wants to innovate and really try new things and try to get the standard moved? Well, this may surprise some people, but um, I'm, I'm somebody that really – thinks that uh, when you experiment, it's it's good to try things. It's good to see if something works. If you like it, um, then you stick with it. And if not, you know, then you can go back to what you had before and, and you didn't lose anything. Um, the reason why that may be surprising is because labor is known as a very uh, hard line, has old rules that have been in place for a long time, and we don't change. Um, that is not necessarily reflective of my personal philosophy, but I think for what labor is and being a league out there for people to watch, I think it relates more to the leagues that they're playing in. And when we see things like labor was four by four back a long time ago, maybe uh, 20 years ago, and it switched to five by five because that became the standard that everybody was playing for the most part. Um, we did not have a mixed league for a long time before we had a uh, we started the labor mixed league. So uh, labor does change, but I like to have it. At least I see the mission of labor is to have it reflect the way that most people are playing, so the results can be 
um, useful to the most and the greatest number of people. But personally, I love to play in different kind of leagues, you know, six by six or or change the rules and, and make some tweaks. Uh, fair points. Uh, Ruben, uh, you have any thoughts? I don't think things should be changed just yet. This is only going on for now maybe one or two years. If we start to see a trend and these same uh, pitchers not going so deep into games and not having the same closers and having closer committees for every team, that type of thing, then maybe in like three, four, five years down the road, then you think of a change. But it's too soon to change because you never know. Things may change back to the way they were. I'd give it some time. I, I don't mind changing the categories just a tad, but I want to wait and see if the trend continues in baseball for this year, for next year, for the year after that, and then we can talk. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a purist, I think. I, I like the standard game. Uh, but, you know, my philosophy is um, it really doesn't matter what the rules are. You give me the rules, and I'll figure out the way to win. You know, I'll, I'll do the math. I'll figure out the, the right strategy. Maybe I won't win the first year, but I'll figure out in, in a couple of years' time how to, how to, you know, how to milk the rules and, and, how, and how to play and what players matter and what, what waiver pickups matter. Um, but, you know, I also do want to have rules that reflect what's in baseball. And I think for me, I also want to take luck out of the equation. I, I don't want to have rules that uh, I just happened to pick this guy and he happened to work and there was really no ingenuity there. Um, so I'm going I'm to describe a couple of different rule changes and you tell me your thoughts on, on, on this. Steve, do you think uh, in general it may be a time to change Roto Leagues from batting average to OBP? Are you in favor of that? I'll tell you, I think you know, if we're going to make a change in labor – that's probably the first one that we would make uh, or the, the one that we're closest to making only because as we were talking earlier, batting averages are, you know, going down, down, down. And now, you know, it's putting more randomness into it. When you look at major league teams and the importance of getting on base is is huge in the way that they drop their offensive philosophies. And I think that makes certainly our game, if we switch to on-base percentage over batting average, much more reflective of what you know managers are asking their hitters to do and the way that the game is being played. You know, walks are a much greater part of, of offense these days um, because hitters just can't get singles with the way that uh, they have been in the past. So uh, a walk is as good as a hit in that regard and easier to get. Um, so for that reason, I think on-base percentage is a better reflection of, of what we're asking hitters to do. And uh, I think that's probably a, a smart change. And many, many leagues have already done that. I know that Tout Wars has and, and others. Um, it may become the industry standard uh, before too long. And, and if so... I will not resist that change. Yeah, I mean, certainly OBP reflects more about real-life baseball than batting average does. Uh, that's for sure true. question is, do you like it in the game? Ruvain, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it's like Moneyball. It's, this is exactly an, a hit. It's just like a walk. It's the same thing. And I, I, I love the idea because pitchers today, they're striking out a ton of people, but they're also walking a ton of people. And you have to give credit for the hitters for not swinging at bad pitches and getting on base and walking that way. That's that's the only way to give them some sort of credit. Yes, they may get a run if that if, if they come around the score and just like a, getting a hit. So what's the difference? There shouldn't be a difference because they're getting on base. Yeah, for me, there's two points. I mean, one, uh, you know, with, with OBP, you get credit for walks. If you're in a batting average league and a guy walks, you're like, ah, crap. You know, I, I want him to hit. 
But in real life, if he gets a walk, certainly that's a good thing. Um, I do find, though, that when you include OBP instead of batting average, it changes the distribution of values, and it makes it more stars and scrubsy. Like Mike Trout becomes an, uh, an unbelievable player. Um, I, I like it more where the players are a little bit more compressed and the, the values are a little bit more fluid. So from a mathematical standpoint, I actually prefer batting average to OBP. And, you know, it, it, it's just my tendency. Uh, but I, I'm really not opposed to it. I, I definitely think it's right for baseball. Just mathematically, I, I like the batting average game. Um, what about uh, saves versus save plus hold? I mean, saves is such a crapshoot these days. And, you know, there are some pitchers who they come in and, and they face the eighth inning. They're great pitchers. Just for whatever reason, the manager doesn't want to give them the role because maybe there's another guy or another guy who has to pitch in the ninth, whatever. Is it time, you think, to change to saves plus hold instead of just saves? I, I'll tell you what. I'm playing in my first saves plus holds league this year, and it's it's interesting. I kind of like it. There are some aspects that I like about it. I mean, it opens up the waiver wire, and you know, more hitter or more pitchers are valuable. You know, it gives credit to those pitchers who get the job done and doesn't depend on you know the manager's whims of uh, he didn't like this guy or this guy and you know somebody failed two nights in a row and so he's out as closer. But I still think there's a part of me that says you should be able to be rewarded for your skill in predicting who the manager is going to tab for that ninth inning role. Because I think most managers do believe that the ninth inning is still the most important inning and they want their best pitcher there. So I'd like to have some sort of uh, balance in there. Maybe if I could, you know, ultimately do it the way I wanted, maybe like count saves twice and holds once because you can have multiple holds in a, in a game too. So maybe emphasize the saves there, but still give credit for the holds. Right. I do think, though, that in baseball, it's with analytics, it's become a little bit more that you're not put, you may not put the best guy in the ninth. You Sometimes you get the more high leverage situations. I know the Mets were using Seth Lugo, who was the better reliever last year, not in the ninth, but in whatever the high leverage situation was. So I, I'm not sure that that holds any more in baseball, that, oh, your best pitcher's got to pitch the ninth. Um, so because of that, I. I uh, maybe I'd consider save plus hold. The problem is that both of them are just fickle categories. I mean, a save, you have to be within three runs. I mean, what if a pitcher comes in when you're up 4 nothing? That's no good. Uh, it, it, it's, it, I don't like the category in general. I'm not sure if you if it's right to drop because we want to give credit to relievers. So, yeah, maybe I'm with you. Maybe we need something like two times saves plus holds just to throw in a little bit of a credit of a hold, and that maybe changes the distribution and doesn't put the elite closers such a, such a high value and you know lets you play a little bit more than middle relievers more. Ruben, you have any thoughts? I was in a points league a couple of years ago that had the saves plus holds. You, you get like 1.5, it was a points league, you get 1.5 points for, it was a head-to-head, 1.5 points per save and a half a point for a hold. It screwed everybody up because I seem to be like the only one using the, the the holds part. And I was just racking up these holds, 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 holds. And then my holds guys 
sometimes turn into the closer, and then you lucked into it. I'm more of a purist. I want just just plain saves. If you can figure out who's going to be the closer, great. If you get if you luck into it, like you said, Ariel, great also. But you know what? There is something to say about waiting every Sunday night to see who wins the fab, to see if you get that potential closer, to see how much money everyone's going to spend on the pen, potential closer. If you do saves plus hold, you're not going to have that anymore. You're going to get going to get a lot more players picked up on fab every weekend, and people are going to use up their money a lot quicker also. What about the wins category? You think, Steve, that it might be time to drop wins as a category? Should we be going more the route of change it to innings pitched? Because that's really what you're getting credit for. Um, Should we go the route of adding quality starts and saying make it wins plus quality starts? Um, What what, what is your uh, philosophy on what we should do with wins? Well, I'm not in the kill the win uh, camp. Um, I, I think that there should be a win in in every game you should have a winning pitcher and uh, i think that what we need to do in fantasy is figure out what we want to reward you know do we want to reward pitchers for doing their job you know that's where the innings might come in um i kind of like the wins plus quality starts to tell you the truth and i've written and advocated for that before because you want to give dominant pitchers credit for doing their job um, and it, but yet you also reward those pitchers who have bad luck and uh, don't end up, you know, with bad bullpens, you know, things like that. Um, you want to at least give them uh, some way to be successful and, and contribute to your fantasy team. So I think uh, when you look at it too, you know, a lot of people don't like uh, quality starts because they say, oh, it's a 4.50 ERA. Well, that's just the minimum. And most of the time, if you pitch a quality start, you're going to be better than the minimum. So it is a good outing most of the time. Uh, so I, I kind of think, yes, you need a win somehow because for relief pitchers that come in and do the job, you know, they come in and tie game. That's their game. And if they can hold the opponent scoreless and have their team score, they deserve some credit for that. So I like the wins to still be part of it, but adding the quality starts, especially now where starting pitchers don't go six innings as often, you know, reward those guys that do. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I don't want to drop wins the category because it that's what the game's all about. And you know, if you look at if you look at the list of wins plus quality starts, you'll actually see probably a more robust list of what you would consider aces. I mean, if you just look at wins over the last couple of years, look at Jacob Degrom. He's not even close to the top. But if you look at quality starts, he's number one. And if you look at wins plus quality starts, yeah, he's right there in the thick of it on the top. So I, I like the list that gets produces. My, my, my beef is just the definition of win and the definition of quality start. I mean, why do we have to reward somebody that pitched well but only has to pitch five innings? If a pitcher pitches four innings, and just because the environment of baseball is we're taking pitchers out earlier, why does the pitcher lose the win? Why does he? Let's say there's a rain delay after four and two-thirds innings. They're not going to put the pitcher back. Why does he all of a sudden lose the win? I think that the definition of a win should should reduce. I think the five-inning rule should go down. Maybe it should go to four, or maybe I even even advocate for three. Um, for quality start, I, I think that maybe the definition should change also. Maybe it should go to five innings uh, instead of six. So I'm, I'm more for changing the definition. I'm less for changing the category, if that, if that makes sense. Um, I want to I want to add one one other thing. If we keep these seven inning doubleheader games, I think the status of a quality start should be five innings instead of six innings for a seven inning game. If we're playing seven innings, then the quality start should be a five 
innings. If you if you're playing nine innings, quality starts six innings. That's two thirds. So why not do five innings for a seven? Inning? I mean, the game counts the same. It's almost impossible. I mean, people are going to be treating these seven inning games differently than other games. If you have a starter who's not doing that well in the fourth inning, and you want to use your bullpen, that's fine because the fourth inning is technically the seventh inning, sixth inning. So you, you actually you technically should. I mean, a lot of managers don't, but they technically should be treating these games differently just because they're seven innings, and we should actually treat them differently also. Like the whole thing with Madison Bumgarner not really having a no-hitter because it's seven innings. No, that he's playing by the rules. He pitched seven innings. He pitched a complete game, which is a full game, and he got a no-hitter. It should be considered a no-hitter. Yeah, well, I, 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 I agree that it should be a no-hitter. And uh, here, here's the thing. Um, it's one thing if you tell me that he did not pitch a complete game, but actually Major League Baseball considers that seven-inning game to be a complete game. To me, if you're going to give credit for the complete game, you should give credit for the no-hitter, right? I'm okay if you say it's not a no-hitter, but we're not going to call it a complete game unless it's nine innings. I'm fine with that. Um, but he did pitch the entire game. He didn't split it up with anybody, and he didn't give up any hits. I think it was a no-hitter. You agree, Steve? Think about this, though. Nolan Ryan had 23 games where he took a no-hitter into the seventh inning. How do you think Nolan Ryan feels about Madison Bumgarner claiming that he pitched a no-hitter in seven innings when Nolan Ryan had 23 of those kinds of games? No, you have to go. I think the simple solution to all of this controversy is to do away with the seven-inning doubleheader. I hate I agree. Them. Yeah. So uh, that yeah. that's what's causing all the unnecessary confusion and uh, and debate and and hard feelings. Um, just do away with those seven inning double headers. Play nine innings. Make that regulation, and then we can talk. Yeah, I mean, I understand that they did it last year because of COVID, whatever. But we're back. We're about to let full capacity stadiums, you know, over the summer. Yeah, they should they should do away with it. It's it's terrible for the record books. It really is. Well, just quickly, what are your thoughts on the extra inning rule with all of a sudden runner on second base? I'm not a fan of that either, uh, because it, what it does is it encourages you know a lot of uh, runs scored without the benefit of a hit. I mean, we saw there was a game the other night, you know, one run scored in the top of the 10th, one in the bottom of the 10th, one run scored in the top of the 11th. Is is that really what we want too? We want to see a ground uh, a ground out, a fly ball and a run score? Um that doesn't mean action to me. So, no, I I'm not a fan of that either. Let's just break out the home run derby after the 12th game <laughs> be done. No, I yeah. mean, I, I I'll say I'll say this. Let's play, you know, kind of work it like the NHL. Play regular rules in the 10th inning, the 11th inning, or the 12th inning, or whatever, you know, whatever point you want to say. And then if you have to, you don't like those uh, uh, games that extend you know, 18 innings and all that sort of stuff and blow your pitcher's arms out, whatever. You want to end it? That's fine. But um, I, I, I do not like the extra inning rule at all. And, and what's the point if you're doing it during the season when in the postseason, that rule is going to go away? So you're playing by different rules in the season than you are during the postseason, which, again, makes no sense. Yep, I, I agree. Uh, let's do the waiver wire. That's where we talk about a few potential players to pick up that you might want to consider for your teams. Steve, who's a player or two that uh, you think that owners should be looking at to pick up this week on the wire? All right, I'll go first. Um, I'm going to go with Tony Gonsolin, who's only owned in 43% of CBS leagues right now, which is just 
unimaginable. Dustin May is out. Gonsolin is supposed to be back in two to three weeks. This is the week to get him because he's still available in more than half the leagues, and he'll be cheaper now than he will be as soon as he's about to come back. Another guy who I was going to mention, and I'm sort of hesitant to mention now because he the way he pitched today, but John Gant. He's owned in only 21% of CVS leagues. It seems to me he walks everybody who doesn't strike out or get out. His ERA is great. He's striking out people, but his whip is ungodly, and he has too many walks. But he also goes deep into games, and he's going to keep his stop, He's going to keep his spot in the rotation at least until Miles Mikolas comes back, and we don't even know when that's going to happen. So those are two guys that are not that well, not that owned many. many sorry, not many owned in leagues, but still available, and you should grab them now because this is the time to get them. Yeah, with Gant, it's just a lot of walks. Um, but he he is getting a lot of wins, and and his neck his schedule is actually very favorable coming up. His next start is Milwaukee, which is a good team to pitch against. Uh, and then Pittsburgh, another good team to pitch against. Then he's going to be a two-star pitcher the following week. Um, it, it's, it's a good schedule. If your whip can take it a little bit, and if you need the wins, I definitely recommend John Gant as well. Um, I'm going to throw in a couple of other guys. Um, Josh Rojas, that's an, Al, an Alex Chamberlain pick. He's heating up. He's under 50% owned on CBS, eligible at second base shortstop. He's got a nice power-speed combo when he's hot. The Arizona Diamondbacks are fantastic so far in offense this year, uh, and he's playing every day. How about Cole Irvin, 50%? Oakland has a knack for producing some good pitching. He looked really good against Toronto the other day. Eight innings pitched against them. Nine strikeouts, three hits against a really good team. He's got a three ERA, and his FIP, ex-FIP, Sierra, they say that he's you know upper, upper mid to upper threes. Uh, in terms of ERA. So that's somebody really in a deep league to to uh, have a flyer on. Um, I'll also add in a couple of hitters that are interesting. Mike Talkman, 15% owned. He's now going to be batting closer to every day, uh, especially as Yastrzemski is until he comes back. He is the number one plate discipline uh, weighted plate discipline index player, according to my MPDI metrics, in all of baseball. Uh, so just take a look at him. Brandon Belt is actually fourth on my list as well. He's 25% owned. If you had Joey Votto at corner, he's probably a good replacement. Brandon Belt's best month of his career is always May. He has nearly a 280 batting average career in May, and he's healthy now. So I really recommend Belt. And also Harrison Bader, only 10% owned. That is completely under uh, what it should be. He is a 15-15 type power speed threat. He's healthy now. Good defender. He made a great catch in the Met game today. Um, he, he should be picked up in all deep leagues immediately. Harrison Bader. Anyone else to add, Steve? Um, you know, I, I look at my leagues and I play in such deep leagues that none of these guys seem to be <laughs> available <laughs> to me. And, you know, it's very sad. So, um, yeah, it's... It, Obviously, when you're talking about um, you know the size of your leagues, it's what what matters. And getting those guys, you know, like like you were talking about Tony Gonsolin, who if you can pick up guys that are on the injured list um, ahead of ahead of their return, it's huge. In a TGFBI league I was in, somebody got Tony Gonsolin last week for two dollars out of a thousand you know a thousand dollar cap. That's that's huge. You can stash that guy on your bench. So I, I think you guys have have hit on a lot of those. And uh, I mean, uh, I would I would follow your advice rather than trying for me to you know to dig to the uh, the the Pablo Sandoval's and Alex Blandinos of the world. 
Yeah. Um, the, the thing, you know, you mentioned getting Tony Gonsolin cheap. You know, if you waited and you say, well, I don't want to burn my roster spot, but if you wait two weeks until he's just a couple days away from starting, if on Fab, he'd be $150 potentially. But if you get him now, it's $2 out of 1000 and you just got to stash him for two weeks. The return on investment is so much better by just using him on the bench for two weeks for $2. Rather and I than, will say, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm saying rather than pick him up last minute, and who knows if you can even get him. Somebody else might even pay $200. Yeah, and, and I think, too, what we're seeing or will be seeing in the future is not only you know those injured guys, but – some of the minor league prospects because now that the minor league season has begun, you know, you're not going to call up for the most part. Um, uh, I mean, uh, Nick Gordon came up for the twins um, right away and, uh, and stole a couple of bases. So maybe he's a guy that in a deep league um, you might want to look at, but those prospects that get a couple of weeks under their belts and are ready to contribute to the big league team. Um, if some of those guys are on your radar, maybe now's the time to to spring and catch those guys before they get a lot of hype of, you know, hit three home runs in four days in uh, in their AAA game. Thousand percent. Pitcher preview. It's where we highlight maybe a potential two good two start pitcher matchup or one key start matchup, uh, and hopefully you won't get gombered this week. Um, <laughs> Gombard, by the way, if we've seen that that floating around. To me, the definition of Gombard is where you see a good matchup from a pitcher. Looks like they're playing crappy teams. There are some red flags with the pitcher. Maybe they walk a lot, but you pick them up anyways, and they just shell you for seven earned runs against not even a good team. Um, so, uh, Ruvain, do, do you have anybody to uh, potentially pick up that might help you this week? Yeah, I actually have two players I want to mention. The first guy is not that much owned in a lot of leagues. I'm talking about Martin Perez for the Red Sox. He, In his last three starts, he's pitched 15 innings with 16 strikeouts with a 3 ERA, and he's at Baltimore and against the against the Angels. That's not that bad of a setup for him. He's only 9% owned in CBS, so you can probably get him off the waiver or wire very easy. And another guy I want to mention who's more owned, this is a guy that 60% of people have him, but only 30% play him, that's Brady Singer. Brady Singer has done pretty well as, as long as Angel Hernandez is not umping. He's done pretty well, and he's got a very favorable matchup. He's at Detroit and at the at the uh, Chicago White Sox, and their lineup is getting beat up because of all these injuries. So if you have him, you must play him. If you don't play him, why do you have him on your roster? I'll throw one name out. Aaron Sanchez, 25% owned his, his matchup this week to start versus Texas and at Pittsburgh. Um, the only thing is he has not gone yet more than five innings pitched. Um, so a little bit wary about getting a win. But in the time he has, he's been decent. He has a 318 ERA, 1-3 whip, 24 strikeouts in 28 innings. Uh, and what I look at for blowups is ground ball rate. His ground ball rate is over 55%. So that limits uh, some of the blow-up damage, and, and maybe he won't get gombered if he does. Uh, and uh, good park, and uh, plays on actually a good team right now, record-wise. So Aaron Sanchez, if he's available in your league. Anyone to add, Steve? Yeah, those uh, were two guys that I had starred on my sheet. So uh, kudos. I think we're all in agreement there. Um, the other guy that I might think about um, going a little bit deeper is um, Albert Alzale of the Cubs. 
uh, matchup at Cleveland at Detroit. I mean, if you can get Detroit, I think that's that's where I, I uh, you know, you tend to get gombered is when you see that second matchup that you're really looking forward to. And uh, you say, oh, well, I can stomach that first matchup. But um, in this case, with uh, the Cubs going on the road, playing uh, a couple of American League teams, you know, they, maybe they're not that familiar with him. Uh, at Cleveland, at Detroit, seems like a, a pretty decent matchup for him. You know, what's funny is that all the outings that got gombered this year have been where the two start. The first outing was the bad one. And then somehow they all turned it around and they all had fantastic outings in their second one and they all won their games. We're talking yeah. Gomber to me, Joe Ross. Like, you know, oh, for, for the week overall, their earned runs were horrible. But, you know, you, if you were interested in the wins, you actually got a win out of each of them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how that works. And, you know, you look at two when pitchers face the same team twice in a row how different the results are so many times. I mean, you could get shelled by a team one time and then come back and shut them out. It's it's pretty amazing how often that happens. Yeah, that is very surprising, actually. A uh, couple of mailbag questions. First from Jacob, he says, how would you go about judging a trade midseason? That's a very, very general question. Um, how would you tackle that, Steve? Well, I think if the general uh, rule of thumb is if it makes your team better, even just a little bit, then you have to think about making that trade. Um, you, you, you look at the entire season as one where you try and incrementally increase the value of your team. And uh, the one thing I think you have to be on the lookout for at midseason you know, or that point in the season is look at what the player is is going to do going forward rather than what they have already done because those stats are already in the book. You're not getting those stats. So what will the player do going forward? You know, look at the current trends, um, look at, you know, how his team is playing, those sorts of things. Uh, and don't think that just because you trade for a guy that he's going to do exactly what he did in the first half. Yeah, well, you buy low, sell high, right? Uh, Ruvain, well, uh, anything to add? Yes, you have to make sure your team, you, you feel the needs that you that you have. That's number one. That's obviously the, one of the main things everyone has to look for. But at the same point, you have to make sure that what you're trading away doesn't hurt you in the future. Like, let's say you have a stolen base guy that you want to trade away, and you're second or third in stolen bases. If you're trading it to a guy who is, let's say, three spots below you and could end up passing you because of that, I'd be a little wary trading to that person unless it feels a glaring need that you have. But otherwise, you have to make sure that you don't yeah, you help yourself more than you hurt yourself when you actually trade to the team that you're trading to. I'll add a couple things. Um, first of all, um, I would worry less about the other guy and more about you in terms of how it gains. Like maybe a trade that you would make would help the other player more than it would help you. But if it's a still a net gain for you, you should still do it, right? Who cares if the other guy is helping him more? But if it still helps you, you should do it. Um, you have to look at with the replacement level, the, the replacement value is. If you're in, in a trade, if you're trading somebody for somebody else, you're going to have a downgrade for the player that you're trading away, and you're having an upgrade for the incoming player. You have to not just look, compare the two players being traded, compare, okay, if I trade this guy, who is replacing him from the bench, right? So uh, if you have a third baseman, well, who's coming in from the bench? You look at that drop in value, 
And then you compare it to, okay, well, I'm now incoming a person, but who is he replacing in the lineup? And see what the increase is from those two people. What you're comparing is not two people being traded. It's the incre- the value of the increase you're getting and versus the uh, value of the decrease that you're giving up. Uh, that's how I evaluate trades midseason. Of course, not just value in total, but you also want to look at the categories. How many points am I standing to gain by the increase in the categories versus how many points am I losing from the outgoing? So those are how you would judge it, and it doesn't have to be equal in value. It just has to help your team in the standings. A little bit easier to judge trades later in the season in terms of how it helps you or not. In the beginning of the season, I would still base it on value. Look at total projections rest of season and do the math in terms of dollar value. Uh, One other question from uh, DP Chillin. He says, is Yusei Kakuchi closer to an ace than to a four-fifth starter? He says, I think so. He's been dealing and going distance. I say, you say, we all let him loose. Well, (laughs) I'm going to disagree with that. I don't think he's an ace. What do you say about you say? I think, you know, he, number one, had uh, the hard luck of being the other pitcher in the game that John means through his no-hitter the other day. So, I mean, he had a quality start in that game, but nobody's going to remember it because uh, his team got no hits. But um, I, I think Kikuchi is, is a solid uh, pitcher who I, I would roster in, in mixed leagues. And uh, I think, you know, he's, he's getting the ball up there, like a 95-mile-per-hour average velocity. The problem that he's run into is that he's getting killed by the home run. Uh, six of them in 37 and two-thirds innings pitched so far this season. And this is from a guy who's really a, a ground ball pitcher. And so when he's getting killed by the home runs, that's something you have to be at least somewhat concerned about. But because he's a good ground ball pitcher, you figure that he ought to be able to turn that around. And so the uh, the inflated ERA may not be as bad going forward as it has been so far. I think he's a fourth, fifth starter. Um, I mean, he has actually been lucky. His BABIP this season is 237, which actually means he's been lucky on the ground balls. He, they're being scooped up. So his inflated ERA may be because of the homers, but it's actually being lucky based on the hits. Um, I, he is a player that there's a very large discrepancy in projections. Steamer has him projected at 3.86 ERA going forward. The bat has him at 4.65. Um, in terms of uh, what I used to say preseason, ATC would call it an interpro- a high interprojectional standard deviation. Preseason, he had a standard deviation of 5, meaning projections do not agree on him. He's a risky player in terms of we just don't know what his true outcome is. Projections agree what his, disagree what his true value is. Um, everyone agrees, actually, he has a whip somewhat a little bit north of 1-3. So to me, you know, call it a low 4 ZRA with a 1-3 whip. Um, if he goes late into games, he could be a starter. It's like Mark, he's like Marco Gonzalez, if you think about it. He's really similar profile-wise. Um, and Marco Gonzalez, to me, is a fourth-fifth starter. Um, maybe in in leagues that reward wins, maybe a little bit more because he can, uh, and, and not losses, he can actually gain some wins because uh, he has length. But he, he's like Marco Gonzalez to me. It's a fourth, fifth starter. He's not even close to an ace. Do you disagree, Ruben? 
No, I, I don't disagree. Um, unless you're in a league where they count, they get points for the amount of innings he pitches. He's going to pitch a lot of innings, but I'm just going to echo what you guys said. He's got a home run to fly by rate of 23.1, which is crazy high. And with that low whip and that low BABIP, it's going to it's going to normalize, and that whip is going to go up. That ERA may go up also. He's only doing he only has an 8K per nine, which is not that great. So I don't know what you're really getting from him. He, he's not going to be an ace he's a good spot starter he's a good possible two-star pitcher once in a while but otherwise i don't think he's anywhere near an ace well sorry dp chillin we we really don't agree with you um uh, but thank thank you for the for the question and comment um and that brings us to injuries ruvain update uh well this year we got you got plenty of uh, work to do right yeah it's, it's unfortunately it's extremely very busy um I'll start with Yadier Molina. He's on the IL with a strained tendon in his right foot. He has been cleared to resume some baseball activity. That doesn't mean all baseball activity, so he's still a while away. I mentioned Bryce Harper earlier. He's he's only played once in the last eight games, and to me it looks increasingly like he may end up on the IL, so look for that to happen. George Springer, he re-injured his quad that he injured when he was rehabbing his oblique injury. The GM already, the GM, not the manager, the GM said it's going to be longer than a 10-day stint, so make sure you have your replacements ready. The GM for the Blue Jays also mentioned about Alejandro Kirk, that he has a left hip flexor strain and will miss at least four weeks, but he said he's very excited to see Reese McGuire play. We'll see about that. Aaron Boone says from the Yankees that Luis Severino is beginning to pitch against live hitters this coming week. That's something to watch for. Carlos Carrasco, this is very interesting. He was supposed to be, he was, everyone thought he was going to be activated in a week or two. They put him on the 60-day IL, which means the earliest he can be activated is May 31st. Why are they doing this? Did he have a setback? It doesn't sound like he had a setback. It just sounds like they're being extra cautious with him. Kristen Yelich, back soreness, back on the IL. One of his managers in the minors before, Andy Haynes, actually said that he always had this occasional uh, back stiffness. It goes all the way back to the time he was in the minors, but not like this. He said it's a little bit different, and the quote is, he's hungry for answers. He actually wants to know what's going on. Brett Anderson, he's on the aisle with a hamstring issue. He completed a bullpen session this week. There's still no timeline when he's going to come back. Jake Odorizzi, a forearm injury. The GM said he's trending toward maybe needing a rehab start or two before being activated, so keep that in mind. Brandon Nimmo had injured his finger when he swung a bat. He left index finger. He's a bone bruise. There you go. Contusion. Bone, bone bruise. Kevin Pillar, who's been red hot, if he's available in any of your leagues, pick him up because he's playing. He's taking all the time there. Anthony Rendon, I mentioned him a couple times. He was placed on the IL with that left knee contusion after fouling the ball off his leg. MRI was normal, but there's no word on when he's going to return. Diego Castillo, groin injury. Um, he was put on the aisle with a, with groin tightness. There's no word of how bad it is or when it happened. But the recently activated Pete Fairbanks, who may be eligible, who may be available in a lot of your leagues because people may have dropped him already, take a look because he may fill in for the closer as for the Rays. And Roberto Perez, he was placed on the aisle with a non-displaced fracture in his right ring finger. He at first said he was going to try to play through it. That didn't work out. Fractures usually take three to five weeks to heal. A guy who may be available in a lot of leagues, you may want to take a, a dollar waiver on, Austin Hedges. He may fill in there for the time being. Steve, um, question. Uh, you, you you have a, a Hall of Fame vote now, right? I do. Yes, I do. All right. You mentioned Yadi or Molina. I'm assuming, is he a Hall of Famer for you? He is, wow. Uh, a lot of debate about that. Um, for me, I... I think he's on the borderline, and um, I, I mean, catchers these days, we're asking them to be offensive players as well as great defensive players, 
we've seen you know Joe Maurer. Um, we've seen Buster Posey win MVP awards mostly for their bats. I think if Yachty is somebody who makes it in, it's mostly for his glove. And uh, because his bat was, while okay, wasn't anything special. I think this is one of those cases where you look at the numbers and it really doesn't tell you everything about Yachty or Molina. I'm leaning at this point to say yes, but it's certainly uh, a borderline case for me. Who has more homers, if you can guess, Salvador Perez or Yadier Molina? Um, I would say, I would say Molina probably because Perez is still still a young guy, relatively speaking. So Salvador Perez has only six less homers than Yadier Molina for his career, and he's nine years younger. Isn't yeah, that crazy. Yeah. Um, do you think Salvador Perez is on the trajectory of making the Hall of Fame? And I'll say this, that uh, according to Baseball Reference, Yadier Molina has a career war of 41. Salvador Perez has a career war of 25. And probably better offensive numbers, you know, you know, if you go four years of him playing at this level, he'll probably surpass them. Other than batting average, Molina has a two eighty two career batting average. Is Salvador Perez, if he keeps this up for the next five, six years, is he a Hall of Famer to you? I... I don't picture him that way. Um, I mean, he's got a World Series ring, so that's you know that's a notch in his favor. But I I don't know that I've ever really considered him to be an elite catcher, um, defensively, maybe so offensively. But uh, he's got to do more. I mean, he's got to have a late career peak. Um, before I think I, I think Joe Maurer deserves to be in and uh, and Buster Posey maybe ahead of uh, Salvador Perez. I think that if uh, Molina makes it, I think Perez is going to be very similar. I mean, obviously not as good a defensive, but far better offensive than Molina. Yeah, and I ball. also think Salvador Perez may end up breaking the home run record for catchers. That that's a possibility. He's still young, and he's he's been playing as a DH. I know they may not count his home runs. That was a whole issue with Piazza getting the home run record because he was hitting them as a DH. But you know what? If he gets close to that record, how can you not put him in? Because what what's the criteria for catchers if you're not going to put him in? I mean, if you if Molina goes in, Molina's not going to hit more than another 40, 50 home runs in his career. I mean, what what's what's what would be the benchmark for catchers to get in at this point then? That's the same argument we see for Jeff Kent too, making it as a second baseman. You know, where where do you where do you draw that line if if you're the best or you have the most of of this particular stat? It's a it's a good question. Uh, yeah, just keep in mind Salvador Perez. Uh, he's not going to break Mike Mike Piazza. Piazza has 427 homers. Uh, he's not going to come anywhere close to that. But he's going to have quite a bit for a catcher, uh, Salvador Perez. Yeah. Well, uh, this is a fantastic episode. We covered a lot of baseball, fantasy baseball, um, lineups, just a lot of great stuff. And thank you so much, uh, Steve, for coming on the show. Could could can you tell everybody where we can read your stuff, follow you, and all things Steve Gardner? Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Steve A. Gardner, and you can find my work if you like the uh, the print medium. You'd like to check out my column, a fantasy baseball column I write for USA Today Sports Weekly. You can find that on newsstands, and uh, you can find me in the pages of USA Today every once in a while, writing about mostly baseball, uh, but occasionally fantasy. And uh, on usatoday.com, uh, just go to mlb.usatoday.com or fantasy.usatoday.com, and I'm there. 
And aside uh, aside from being a great fantasy player and great sports writer, Steve is just one of the nicest guys. Forget about nice guys in the fantasy industry. Nicest guys I've ever met, really. Um, if you guys don't know Steve Gardner, just you're a fantastic person. You're much too kind. Thank you very uh, much. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Ruvain, before we go, why don't you tell everybody where we can find your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out daily injury updates about players, how long they're going to be out, who's going to be up next. And I also have a weekly injury article for Rotoball that comes out every Saturday and helps you prep for Fab Sunday. And I'm Ariel Cohen. You can read my work over at Fangraphs, over at Rotoballer, CBS Sports Line. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. And of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast. We'll be back next week as well. Uh, from all of us here at Beat the Shift, thank you so much to Steve Gardner for joining the show. And to all of you, see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.